0: Good morning, church family. Ooh, that's loud. It's a little loud. Good morning. Yes, Gloria. That, I hope the word, because it's in Latin, isn't lost on you when you sing it. But it is glory. Glory, worth, weight, beauty, honor. To him and him alone. That's why we sing it. Amen? Amen. So, with that, to his word we go. So, if you would open your Bibles to the uh, book of 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians, we are in chapter 3. Lord willing, we will finish chapter 3 today. We'll be starting in verse 7, and uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, um, there should be one maybe in the chair in front of you, and if there is not one, there's also handouts in the back table back here where the scripture is going to be on the back page. So, a lot of resources to follow along. I highly encourage that you do that. Follow along with us as we, as we go through the Word of God uh, line by line, word by word, verse by verse. This is, this is what we do here. We go through the Bible verse by verse, so it's, it's helpful if you follow along verse by verse. Technical difficulty. Here we go. Okay, so, while you're turning there, uh, when Ashley and I, when we first got married, she actually she brought someone into the relationship with her. His name was Winston. He was a little dog. Okay, he, he was a furry little monster. He was a Yorkie, and he was cute as could be. He was really super sweet. Uh, he had a bit of an attitude, which kind of added to his cuteness, right? He was, he was a lot of fun. He would, he would play when you wanted him to play. He would ring the bell when he wanted to go outside. He was really well trained. Uh, he was, he would just, he was awesome. Uh, it took me a minute though to kind of get to like him because he kind of interfered in our relationship quite a bit at the first, but eventually I began to love him. He just really grew on me. I, I got to love this dog. He was my guy. Right? He would greet me at the door. He'd cuddle me on the couch. If I wanted to play, he would play. I love this little guy. And if you have pets that you love, you kind of know what I'm talking about. It is, a, it is a pretty special love, the love for a pet. But then, Ashley and I got pregnant. We had our first child, a little girl, this precious, sweet little Peyton. And the love I felt for this little girl was so big. It was so big. It took really no time at all. The minute I saw her, it was love at first sight. I couldn't wait to hold her. Couldn't wait to feed her or, or to do any of the things we do at the beginning. I couldn't wait to do it. I just wanted to hold her. It was absolutely huge, unknown love. And so, of course, we bring her home, and little Winston greets us at the door. And I'm like, bro, move. (laughs) Out the way, dog. I got my daughter. Uh, Instantly, Winston became kind of second fiddle, right? The, The love that we had for Peyton began to overshadow the love we had for Winston. In comparison, it was almost as though we didn't love Winston at all. We did. But the love we had for Peyton just completely overshadowed it. Maybe you've experienced this. Even if you don't have have children, maybe you've thought something was really good until you experienced something else far better. Right? Maybe you were like me, and you thought you were a really good singer. Then you heard Brandon sing. Not so much. I still sing loud, though. I still try to sing loud, Brandon. Right? You get the point. Often we experience in our life paradigm shifts. Paradigm shifts in the way that we view things because we've seen something more glorious, more true, more real, more precious than what we had previously known before. And when that happens, there's a shift in the way that we think. There's a shift in the way that we view life. Right? My my love for Peyton didn't just shift the way I viewed Winston, it shifted the way I viewed life in general. Even my love for Ashley changed for the positive it grew. The way I viewed life became different. What I viewed as important was no longer important. What I thought wasn't important became very important. Things just changed. There's a paradigm shift. And that's really what this text is covering today. Paul is arguing from the lesser to the greater. As he compares the old covenant and the new covenant, I believe it is his desire and that's important when we read the Bible is to really look and see what is the author's desire to communicate? What is he wanting to communicate to this church? Therefore, what does the Spirit want to communicate to us as we read it today? I believe it is Paul's desire, and therefore the Spirit's desire, to put on display the glory of the new covenant. The glory of the new covenant. Why? So that we, as we look at the riches of the work of the Spirit in our salvation, all that the Spirit has done in our salvation, that we might do four things this morning. They're also on the back, this is also in the front of your handout. Things that we should be praying for as we are reading this text. That we might see the law as God has designed us to see it. Number two, that we might marvel at what God had done for us in Christ and is still doing, even now in Christ. That we might, three, have a clearer vision of what life is really about. Like, what it's really about. Not what we think it's about, not what we want it to be about, but what Scripture says it really is about, and therefore live in the liberty and the freedom that He has produced for you, and in you. And number 4, that we would be bold proclaimers of the work that God has done and is still doing. All of these bring glory to God. All of these are what bring glory to God. So would you pray would you pray with me because that's the only way we're going to understand this text. Is if we ask the Lord to open our eyes and help us see what he wants us to get from this today. So pray with me as we go to God's word this morning. Father, you are good and you are holy and you are worthy of praise every moment of our lives. Oh God, we ask, Lord, that your word would come alive to us, that your spirit would open our eyes to see the riches, the riches that are in your word, the riches that are producing glory after glory in our hearts. If we could have eyes to see it. Oh God, if we could have soft hearts, oh God, to receive your word, Again, Lord, I pray that every person in this room would hear, not me, but you. The preacher would get out of the way and that your words speak. Lord, we ask that you would put on display the glory of the gospel and that it may have its full effect in every person here today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, you should be there already. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Starting in verse 7. So, but if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, He used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. This is God's Word to us this morning. This is the literal Word of your Creator. I pray that you would have hearts to receive it. Our main point this morning is that the unfading ministry of the spirit, the unfading ministry of the spirit produces boldness, unveiled freedom, and ongoing transformation. Unfading ministry of the spirit produces boldness, unveiled freedom, and ongoing transformation. Now, just backing up for just a minute, last time we were in this text, we covered verses 1 through 6, and it's here that Paul kind of tells the church that the validity of his ministry, which is what was in question with the false teachers that had come in, the validity of his ministry, he's saying it should not be questioned. This should not be questioned. Why? Because it was clear that this church had been changed. And it was clear that this church had been changed by the gospel that Paul preached. They had gone from death to life. They had gone from loving false gods to loving the true God. And that is a work of the heart. To love God, to go from God-hater to God-lover, that is a work of the heart, and that is something that only God can do. Only God can change the heart. Only God can open blind eyes. Only God can soften hard hearts, and only God can raise dead men to life meaning that those who are in Christ, they would be a people who would obey from the heart. And only God can do that. Only God can do that. And so, of course, this ministry that Paul proclaimed to them, that it caused change in them, was from God. Of course it was. In this ministry, Paul refers to as a new covenant ministry. And he's he's making a stark contrast between the ministry of the letter we see in verse 6. And, that, and that's the letter or the ministry of these false teachers that had come into the church. That was their ministry. It was the letter. That's what they were promoting. Now remember, Paul is having to defend himself because these false teachers have come in and they have come into the Church of Corinth, and these false teachers, they were doing what all false teachers do. They were proclaiming a false gospel. They were pointing the church to a different gospel. They're pointing the church to a gospel that seemed like the real gospel because it sounds a lot like the real gospel, but then they add to the gospel and it instantly becomes fake gospel. Chapter 11 gives us some insight into these false teachers or false prophets. Chapter 11 of this very book. Paul, in this section of the the letter, he's kind of calling out the false teachers. He's getting a little harsh with them. I don't mind that kind of gives us an example of how we should deal with false teachers. Verse 13 of chapter 11 says, for such men are false apostles. He doesn't pull any punches. He just calls it like he sees it. He says they're deceitful workers. They're disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So they're pretending to love Jesus as a disguise, as a ruse to try to get their message in the back door. He goes on to say, no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. That's every false teacher. They sound so true because they mention the name Jesus, but then they slip in a message that is man-centered in the back door. Verse 22 of of chapter 11 says this. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Point being is that these guys were Jews. These guys were Jews, and the message that they were slipping in the back door was that you have to obey the law. If you want to have fellowship with God, if you want to have a relationship with God, then you have to be obedient to God to earn that salvation, to earn that relationship. So they were pointing people away from Paul. They were pointing people away from his message of salvation in Christ, his message of grace. And they, these teachers, they were pointing this church to the law to a different gospel. And again, this is what all false teachers do. They point away from the true Jesus and from the true God-glorifying gospel, and they point people to a man-centered gospel. They say, they point people to a Jesus who isn't God. They point people to a Jesus who isn't sovereign. They point people to a Jesus who maybe is just your buddy. They point people to a Jesus who... Didn't who is a created being? Maybe he's just an angel. And this goes from every religion, from from the Muslim all the way to Jehovah's Witness and Mormons who claim to be Christian. They point you to a Jesus who isn't God, and therefore a Jesus who cannot save you. They add to the gospel. They say, "Yes, yes, Jesus, but but you got to have works too. Jesus plus works. Jesus plus law." But any faith, any faith that says Jesus plus, Jesus plus anything, well, that is a gospel that equals nothing. If you add to Jesus, you get nothing except wrath, except what we deserve. But yet Jesus plus nothing, well, that equals everything. We bring nothing to him. None of our works, none of our deeds, none of our efforts can earn us anything except more judgment because it's like you're trying to bribe the king. And the reason is because all throughout Scripture, from Old Testament and New, it says that salvation belongs to who? To the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Therefore, all the praise and all the glory that comes with it all belongs to God. It all belongs to God alone. So Paul is pointing them at, pointing out to them that the change that took place in you that didn't happen because of law. The law could never do that. The change that took place in you was because of the Spirit. Life doesn't come from law. Life doesn't come from rule keeping. Life comes from the Spirit, which of course then catapults Paul. Paul's kind of he writes like a lawyer. He says something, and then his mind kind of goes off what seems like on a tangent. And then he picks back up a little bit later, but it's all connected. That's the beauty of it. But it catapults Paul into a long and intense contrast between the ministry of these false teachers, which was the letter, and the law. Or the law and the ministry that was given to him. The ministry of the new covenant. So starting in verse 7, he says this, but if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? Our first, our first sub point is this is that the glory contest is no contest. The glory contest between these two covenants is no contest. It's death versus life, it's condemned versus justified, and it's fading glory versus remaining glory. That's what he covers in these first 11 verses. Now we should first understand that Paul, when he's talking about letters engraved on stones, he's talking about the law, or namely the Ten Commandments. The law that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. In these And again, in verse 6, Paul refers to his ministry as the new covenant ministry. And so when we read that, we should hear that Paul is a servant of the Spirit of God who works in the heart and gives life. That's what the new covenant ministry does. It gives life. That's what the Spirit does, therefore. He gives life. And so he's not a servant of the letter. He's not a servant of the law because the law produces death. So there it is. There's the ultimate contrast. There's the ultimate comparison. Death and life. But in verse 7, he says, it's not as though the ministry of death was without glory. saying it's not as though this, this ministry of death had no glory at all. Oh, it has glory. It has a ton of glory. It had worth. It has value. And I think it's important. I mean, as, as much as we sang the word glory today, we should understand what the word glory means. I love the definition of glory that goes like this it is it is the holiness of God put on display for all to see and all to praise That's what glory is when you when you give God when you give God glory that is what you're doing you're saying look at how holy he is look at how other he is look how uncreated he is look at how perfect how beautiful how magnificent How amazing, how loving, how holy he is. And when you do that, you give him glory because you put his holiness on display. And when you live a life that represents to the people how holy he is, you put on display his holiness, which brings him glory. That's what it means to glorify God. And so the law had glory because it was of God. The law has glory because it declares God's holiness and his character. When you read through the, the law, when you read through the Ten Commandments, it reveals much about the mind of God. It reveals a lot about the heart of God. Right? When we read it, we should see, without doubt, we should see that God has a passion for his own glory, for his own holiness to be put on display for all to see and all to praise and we should see his love for those made in his image. That's what, the law, that's what the law puts on display. His holiness and his love for those made in his image. So the law, it magnified the nature, it magnified the character and the goodness and the perfect standard of God. And it puts up on that pedestal for all to see that God is holy holy, holy. Therefore, the law is glorious. The law is glorious, but its purpose, the purpose of presenting God in this way was not to impart life to you. Its purpose was not to impart life, but rather it was to impart death. That in fact was the service. That in fact was the ministry of the law. The purpose of the law was death. That's what God designed it for, death. Romans 3, we put it this way, verse 19, also on the back of your handout. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks of those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. So who is under the law? Everyone. Who's accountable to God? All people, the whole world. Why? Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. That wasn't the point. The point of the law was not to justify people. It was to kill people. He says, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 5 would say it this way, that the law came in so that transgressions would increase. It's not that when you look at the law, you suddenly start sinning more. It's that when you look at the law and the holiness and the character of God, you start to realize just how much sin is inside of you. It increases. The sight of how much sin you think you have compared to how much you really have increases. Romans 7, we put it this way, For while we were in the flesh, sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, We're at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. That was the purpose. This ministry produces death because it increases sin and you can't fulfill the law. You can't complete it. And so it makes us aware of that which is killing us and therefore it kills us. It's a good thing. The law is a killer because it reveals the sin that is inside of us all. It reveals that we're not good. It reveals that we're not holy. It reveals that we are so unlike God and that we're so unable to be like God that it's utterly ridiculous that we think we could ever do it. And so the law shows the reality of our condition before this holy God. That if you die in your sin, you will come face to face with God Almighty and you will then know, if you don't know now, just how much trouble you're in. Which is what makes it so glorious because it gives us that opportunity to recognize it now. It gives us the chance to recognize the trouble now. Which makes it totally glorious because that is exactly what we need. We need the law to do what it does. To show you in me just how guilty we are before a holy God. In fact, Paul would continue trying to describe that the glory of the law. He would say that this letter of death, it came with so much glory that he refers back to Exodus 34 and tells us that when Moses entered God's presence to receive the law, his face would shine so bright when he came off the mountain that Israel would not look at him. Now, if you read the passage in Exodus, it would say because they were, it would seem like they were afraid, they would run they would look and they would run. They would go away from him. They would run from the glory of God, which that's what sinners do, right? We don't run to the light. We run away from it. And that's exactly what they did. See, Moses, when he was in the presence of God and receiving glorious revelation of God's nature and character and holiness, when he was in the presence of God, this presence of God's glory, which shines so bright that that it would reflect off of Moses' face. But Paul reveals that it would fade. This this reflection or this, this glory would fade as soon as Paul left the presence of God. So it was a fading glory. So Paul asked the question, he asked this question, if this ministry, <clears throat> if this ministry, this ministry of the law, whose main purpose and main glory was to produce death in us, then how much more glorious? How much more glorious is the ministry of the Spirit? How much more glorious is the gospel that produces life? How much more glorious is this that works life in you? There's two ministries. One is working death in you to the glory of God, and one is working life in you to the greater glory of God. It's a greater glory. But he continues in verse 9. We start to see now the comparison of condemnation versus justification. So he says it again, but in a different way. He says, For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness, love this word, abound in glory. Abound in glory. The glory of the law reveals enough about God to condemn you. It reveals enough about him to condemn you or judge you. And this is death. That is what death is, to be condemned or judged and then cast out of God's presence forever. That is death. And yet, and yet it is also the work of God to make the unrighteous righteous. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is that? If, Paul is saying that if the ministry of death has glory because it declares the guilty as guilty, that's justice. That is justice. And justice is glorifying. Then how much more does the ministry which takes guilty sinners, pays for their sin on the cross, and then credits you with Jesus' perfect life, how much more glorious does this abound in revealing the glory of God's grace? That's the ministry of righteousness. It takes the unrighteous and makes you righteous. Not because of anything you did, but because Jesus did it all. How much more glorious is a ministry that produces life? How much more glorious is a ministry that produces righteousness and kicks out death? Oh, it's so much more glorious. Because it reveals the greater glory of his grace. This is what Paul would say in Ephesians 1, that we will praise the glory of his grace. The glory of his grace that provided atonement for sin and the righteousness we need to be in his presence. All provided by Christ. But that's not all. That's not all. Verse 10, we see it's a fading glory versus a remaining glory. He doesn't just make you righteous, wipe the slate clean, and say, good luck. It's a permanent righteousness. It's a permanent righteousness that you can't lose. And believe me, if you could, you would. It's a permanent righteousness. He says, for indeed what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that remains is in glory. And so Paul makes another distinction. The glory of the new covenant is so glorious that it makes the old covenant look like no glory at all. Love for child over love for dog. It's just different. It surpasses it. It's like it's like the glory of the stars, as beautiful as they are in their own right. As soon as the sun comes out, it overwhelms the stars, and you can't even see them anymore. It is a greater glory. It's a greater light. It overshadows. And so this, so is the glory of the law overtaken by the glory or worth or value of the new covenant. That's what's taking place in the new covenant. It takes the glory of the law and it overtakes it. It overpowers it, kicks it out, and kicks out death and puts in righteousness. The glory of the new covenant kicks out condemnation and puts in righteousness. All based on what Christ did on the cross. But he goes on to say that the glory of the new covenant, which completes our salvation, he says it's a remaining glory or it's a permanent glory. It is a constant never-ending work of the spirit who now lives in us. Those who are in Christ now have the spirit of Christ abiding in them and he will not leave. No matter how hard you try, he will not leave. He will not forsake you. He will keep working in you. He will keep working and he will keep working and he will keep working in you. And he says he will do this forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Let that sink in for a minute. Think about a sin right now that you might be struggling with. And you feel like, man, I'm probably gonna struggle with this the rest of my life. Don't say that to yourself. You don't have to struggle with the sin for the rest of your life, but praise God for the struggle. Praise God that you hate it enough to hate it and struggle with it, but don't settle with it. Fight it! But not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. He promises to get rid of the sin. Do you trust Him? Keep praying. Keep praying. Keep praying because He is continuing to work and work and work. We should not settle. We should not say, I think I'll just probably struggle with this the rest of my life. Don't say that. That's counter to what this is saying. That's counter to this. It is a permanent, abiding spirit who took you from death to life and he's going to keep bringing you into greater and greater and greater fellowship with God. This is the promise. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? This means that the work of the Spirit who empowered the work of the law in you, or overpowered the work of the law in you, he's the very same Spirit that delivered you from death to life. This is the same work of the Spirit that will continue to change you. He will keep doing it. He'll keep changing you and changing you. Minute by minute, day by day, to deliver you from the flesh. And he does it through his Word. He does it through prayer he does it through the body. He does it through all the means of grace. I have to wonder if if we're, if we're availing ourselves to the means of grace, but we're not able to kick sin. It's kind of like we're the, the means of grace are like wood we put into the fire and the spirit comes and lights it. But then, but then we go throughout the week and we watch things on TV. We read things we shouldn't read. We watch things we shouldn't watch. And even though we're reading the word, And even though we're in community and even though we're praying a lot, it's like we're just pouring water on that wood because we're just filling our minds with such stuff counter to it. Don't put water on it. Don't put water on the very means of grace that he wants to light on fire in you. But also be encouraged because he won't leave He won't leave. He will not abandon. He will remain. He will finish the work he began in you. That's the promise. Therefore, verse 12. How great is verse 12? Having having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. Brings our second point. The greater the hope, the greater the boldness. The greater the hope, the greater the boldness. This is the application of, verse, of the first 11 verses. The implication is what hope you have in Christ. Such immense, incredible hope. It is incredible and unthinkable the work of God to pursue you, to take on flesh, live the life you couldn't live, die the death you should have died, and then, Not only go through all that, but then pursue you again. And then touch your heart and open your eyes to see the glory of Christ. Put your faith in him and that he might impart life into you. Starting now and forever. It's unthinkable, but it's so encouraging. It is the greatest hope because we have life now and we have life growing and we have life continuing forever and ever and ever and he won't leave. And so the application to that, the result of that is boldness. What boldness this should give us? You might ask, boldness to do what? Boldness to say with absolute confidence, the law cannot save you. That takes boldness. It takes boldness to tell somebody you're you're kind of trusting in your works. It takes boldness to tell somebody you're not good The law cannot save you. It is boldness to speak against every worldly religion that has ever existed. Every worldly religion. There's only two religions in the world. Those that exalt man as they earn their way to God. And we know they fail. And the Bible that says you can't. He comes down and and he brings you up. There's only two. So it takes boldness to speak against every world religion that has ever existed and to tell them that the law can't save. Nope. Not going to do it. Not going to happen. No, no works By no works will any man be justified or declared not guilty before God, but only and totally by the work of Christ alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And let me tell you, there's never been a moment in history where that hasn't taken boldness. But those with greater hope have the boldness to say it. Those who know the truth have boldness to speak the truth. And Paul would in fact continue this thought of boldness in verse 13 by contrasting the new covenant ministry boldness with that of old covenant boldness. Boldness. He says, we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. So according to Paul, Moses in Exodus 34, verses 29 through 35, you can look it up uh, a little later if you like, but Moses would cover his face so that Israel would not be able to see that shining face or that glory shining from his face, even though it was fading And he would cover it, according to Paul, so that they wouldn't see that it was fading. So it seems that Moses, what would happen is he would would go into the presence of God and come down with a very shiny face. And then he would deliver the message that God had for for him to the people. And then he would conceal his face so that they wouldn't see that that glory that they were shocked at was fading. And then he would go back into the presence of God again and kind of get refreshed, as it were, come back down, deliver another message, and then reconceal. So he would go up, unconceal, go down, deliver, conceal. Okay, so from this we see that Moses would, in fear, he would conceal his face. He didn't want them to see that the glory was going away. And in doing so, he would conceal that the glory that, that was of the law was a fading glory. But we also see that there, there was some glory there. There was some glory for them to see. Fade, even though it was fading, and even that glory was concealed from the people as well. So there was two things concealed. Glory that they were meant to see and the fading glory they were meant to see. To, to see that there was a better glory to come. Moses concealed both of those. And so our third point is this, is that In Christ, in Christ, we are free from the law and free to delight in Him. In Christ, we are free from the law, or another way to put it is unveiled from the law and free to delight in Him. So Paul continues in verses 14 through 17 to say that this same veil, this same veil still remains. The glory that they were meant to see and the fading glory they were meant to see is still veiled, but it lies over their mind of Jews today and it lies over their heart. So Paul brings this up because he wants the church in Corinth to see that these Jewish leaders that have come into the church, they're preaching this false gospel, they're preaching this works righteousness religion. He's saying that these men are blind. They're blind, they're veiled. They're veiled. They cannot, and hear me, this means they will not see the law for what it is because they refuse to see Christ for who he is. They are willingly veiled. And so the veil is removed in Christ. Meaning that when their eyes are opened by the Spirit of God to see the surpassing glory of Christ, then the veil is removed from their mind to understand that the law is nothing but death to them. The veil is also over their heart. Meaning they cannot delight in God's law as they were created to. They were created to delight in the law of God. That's what Psalms 1 says. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of God and on he meditates day and night. But instead they come to the law either begrudgingly or self-servingly or they want to raise themselves up and hold it over other people's heads. That's why they come to the law. To them, the law glorifies them. And so, we see that that is not the way to see the law, but rather to delight in it. And so now Moses... Passage is tricky. Paul kind of comes in and out of thought, okay? So just follow along with me, okay? So Moses... Picking up in verse 17, when he would go back to the Lord, he would remove his veil. He would remove his veil. And so Paul uses that picture of going into the presence of the Lord or turning to the Lord and the act of taking the veil off in his presence. He would use that picture to say that anyone who comes into the presence of the Lord or turns in repentance and faith, their veil is removed. This is not an order of faith passage. This is is a fact of the matter that when you come to Christ, the blinds are taken off. It's a simultaneous action. Meaning that Jesus, when when you put Jesus up next to the law, and you put the glory of Christ next to the glory of the law, his glory changes the way you see this glory. The law now glorifies Christ as as the fulfillment of the law. And in light of his glory, meaning in light of the magnitude of his grace that we should just overwhelm us, the law now becomes not a a begrudging thing, but a precious lamp. It's a precious lamp. It is a light unto our feet. It is sweeter than honey because it's how we now relate to our God who has bought us, purchased us, redeemed us. This is the heart of the person who has seen the glory of Christ in the gospel. Listen, in in the light of the gospel that we've talked about all morning, in the light of this good news, we see the law for what it is. It is both a killer and a pointer to the Savior. And once we have this Savior, the law now transitions to becoming a delight, a joy to please our Savior. Not to get saved, but to please the one who saved you. And because we see how much it magnifies his character, we say, I want to be like him. I want to be like him. I want to be like the one I now adore. And so now we see the law for what it is. A killer, a pointer, and a lamp. It's a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, and a joy. A joy to serve our God, who we now love and adore. Now, continue saying that this, this one we turn to. This one we turn to the, the Lord. Okay, Paul says in verse seventeen that he is the Spirit. Okay, so he's, he's still back to this. He's still talking New Covenant language. He's talking about the Spirit and the work of the Spirit meaning that the Lord and the Spirit are one in mind and heart and nature. They are distinct in person, okay? They are distinct in person, but one in being, just along, just like the, along with the Father. So this new covenant ministry that Paul is proclaiming and, the, and that Paul is elevating to this church is the ministry of the Father, Son, and Spirit. They are one in accomplishing this work. They are one in nature. And so when you turn to the Lord, it's the work of the Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit who does this. And wherever the Spirit is, Paul goes on to say, there's liberty. There's liberty from this law, which begs the question where's the Spirit? Where is the Spirit? Clue, I gave you, I told it to you already earlier. If you're in Christ, He's in you. This is the promise of the new covenant. This is the promise of our Lord Jesus Christ when he was here on the earth with us, is that the spirit of the Lord is now in you. This means that the presence of God that Moses was in front of is now in you forever. You, don't, you can't leave the presence of God anymore. But the presence of God does not reside on a mountain. It's not in a tabernacle. It's not inside these church walls. It's not in nature The presence of God is in you. He he has come to abide in you, which means that if you have Christ in you, you are never out of God's intimate presence that should reflect off of you forever and ever and ever. This means you're always empowered. You're always empowered by his spirit who has set you free from the law. That is the greatest power of the spirit residing in you. Not to do miracles or wonders or signs or any crazy thing like that, but to obey. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. And he set you free from the bondage of the law. That's what he does. That's the most miraculous thing. Romans 8.1 would tell us that you're no longer bound to do something you could never do. You're no longer bound to keep the law. Like just, I gotta keep it or else he's gonna, you're not gonna, he's gonna reject me. I've got to do this. He's going to reject me. You don't have to do that anymore. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're not bound to do with something you can never do. This this is a bondage leading only to death. And you were bound to it because you were enslaved to sin. But in Christ, you have been set free. Do you know what that means to be set free? Christian jargon. Christian jargon. We we say, I've been set free. And that usually means, to most people, do whatever I want. That's not what it means. It means that you've been set free from your own blindness. The veil's been removed. You've been set free from your own blindness. We were unable, because of our sin, because of the love of our sin, we were unable to see the glory of Christ. We were unable to see Christ for who he was because we loved our sin, that is, until the Spirit opened your eyes. And then you saw. And then you saw how beautiful and magnificent and glorious Jesus is. That's the glory of the new covenant. The glory of the new covenant is liberty we have from sin, not to sin. It's the liberty we have from sin, which means that what we talked about already, the new covenant has set you free from the penalty of sin. That's justification. It's done deal. He's also setting you free. That's current, ongoing, setting you free from the power of sin in Christ. That's sanctification. And one day, this is the hope, glorious hope, We will be set free from the presence of sin in Christ forever and ever and ever. That's glorification. That's glorification. This is the work of the Spirit. And that pretty much sums up verse 18 for us. But 18 tells us how he does it. 18 tells us how the Spirit does it. It says, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being Transformed, sanctified into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Our final point this morning is that the glory of the new covenant is an ongoing and transforming glory. It's an ongoing and transforming glory. This means, picking up on verse 13, he says, We're not like Moses. <laughs> We're not like Moses. We don't veil our face. No. No, we are, we are a people with unveiled face. Notice the singular word there. Not faces. We are a people with unveiled face. It's one face. Being the body of Christ. Paul brings the church of Corinth suddenly from kind of the ethereal into corporate, actual corporate ministry. Maybe a cerebral a new word I learned this week, into corporate ministry. Okay? We have the hope that produces boldness, and unlike Moses, we as a body with unveiled face because we are always in the presence of God. Always. We are always unveiled before God. There's no going out of his presence. There's no going back into his presence. There's no fading glory, and there's no hopelessness. How beautiful is this? I mean, literally, everybody should be leaving here skipping today. We have so much hope, so much reason for joy, so much reason for boldness. We should just be clapping our hands, rejoicing at every word that Paul has written here. There's no hopelessness, but instead, as a body with one face, he says we are gazing. That's what this word means. It's actually the only time this word is used in the Scriptures and it's traded, it's, uh, it's in the English as beholding. But the word is called, it's like mirror-gazing. It's mirror-gazing. That's why the, e- the NASB has it as beholding as in a mirror. The ESB just has beholding, because the word mirror is not in there. But the idea is that you're, you're mirror-gazing. Okay? The word is mirror-gazing because it's to look intently into a mirror. Okay, because mirrors were not like what they are today. Not very, they weren't very clear. They were basically brushed bronze. So in order to see what you wanted to see, you couldn't get a quick look, do this, and then leave. You had to be like, gaze into it to kind of try to get the picture. So Paul is taking that body language of how we should gaze into the glory of Christ. We're to look intently into it. And it's not because the gospel is hard to see. It's not. But let me tell you, we have not begun to scratch the surface. We have not begun to scratch the surface of its glory. We have not begun to even understand the depths and breadths and heights and lengths of the glory of the gospel. We will spend an eternity upon eternity upon eternities getting our arms around it. And the more we do, the more we will become like him. And that's, that's the point. That's the point. It says we with unveiled faces, we, we don't have a veil anymore. We gaze into the glory of our Lord. We gaze. We behold his worth, his value. We, we kind of just relish and sit and soak in his grace. We meditate on it. We chew on it. We, we marvel in it. We don't just breathe by it. We stare into it, and we gaze into it, and when we do, we are transformed into that image. You become what you behold. You become what you worship. Which means that like Moses, we now reflect the glory. We reflect the righteousness of Christ when we become more like him. And by we, I still mean the body of Christ, which means this is a corporate act. We are not just gazing, we're taking each other's faces and gaze at this. Look at this. We're pointing others, one another, to him all the time because we're prone to forget. We're prone to look at other shiny objects. We gotta take each other's face and just look. It's a corporate ministry, it's a corporate ministry. And the beauty of it is that 1 John 3 tells us that when we finally see him on that day, then the work will be done and we'll be like him. Imagine you'll be like Christ on that day when you see him face to face. All that you admired about him, all that you love about him, that'll be you minus the deity. And isn't that the joy of any blood bought person? Isn't that the joy of any blood bought person and the desire of any Christian to be like their Savior? Don't you want to be like Him? You don't have to wait. Because we can look to the Scriptures, we can look to the glory of the Gospel, we can see that He's merciful. So we want to be merciful. Don't you want to be as merciful as he is? Don't you want to be as loving as he is loving? Don't you want to be the rescuer as he is a rescuer? Don't you want to be sent as he was sent? Don't you want to proclaim the good news of the glorious covenant ratified in the blood of Jesus Christ the way that he did? Absolutely. You want to be more like Jesus? Gaze. Gaze upon the gospel. How quickly we stop in our tracks to look at a sunset. As beautiful as that is, it pales in comparison to the glory of Christ. But in the same way, look. Look at Him. Look at Him. Gaze at Him. Meditate on Him. Ponder him, wonder, marvel, enjoy, praise, exalt, sing, clap, and be changed. Be changed by the holiness of God. Put on display in the love of Christ for you. And then reflect glory by beholding glory. Reflect glory by beholding glory. It is the only way. And this is our only application for you today. This is the only application I have for you today. Merely, behold the glory of Jesus Christ. Marvel at what God has done and is doing and will continue to do in you forever and ever and ever. Praise him, thank him, and then enjoy him. Amen.